0: Could I tell one story that explained how we all got into the closet, exactly how awful it was to grow up closeted, and perhaps chiefly, what happens when we all come out of our closets?
1: Welcome to Book Society, the podcast where we talk to authors about the books that they love to read and dive deep into the books that they've written. I'm your host, Lucas Cantor-Santiago. This week, we're continuing our chat with Jessie Hempel. So if you haven't listened to last week's episode where we talked about one of her favorite books, All This Could Be Different by Sarah Thuncombe-Matthews, you should go back and listen to it. But now we're going to dig into Jessie's own book, The Family Outing. It's a literary memoir about how everyone in her family came out and it changed their family dynamic. That is a very rough description of the book. It's a beautiful book. It's very complicated. It's very intricate, but I think that's the elevator pitch. (laughs) So I started your book, and my thoughts for the first, I don't know how long, but for a little bit, I was like, I like this narrator. You kind of have the same skill that Sarah does, where you're just beautifully articulate and you're wonderful at describing things. And I could listen to you describe anything and I'd be happy. You know, it's just fantastic. But I said, I love this narrator, but I feel like she's kind of keeping something from me and I don't entirely trust her. And by the end of the book, Like I loved everyone in your book. And the reason that I loved everyone in your book is because you love them so thoroughly. And this comes out over the course of the book. Mm. And I found by the time I put your book down, I was like, I like want to be a member of your family. Like you so clearly love these people and you paint them in such a loving way. And by the end of it, like this was all dispelled. I was like, oh, the thing that she was hiding is she, she didn't know how to express this love in the way that was appropriate. And like you came to it at the end of the book. That was my interpretation. I
0: love that. I mean, literally, I just want to play that for my family. Be like, see, see, (laughs) I mean, Lucas says that I love you a lot. But, you know, I think that that is the truest summary of the book, which is that the place that landed me is the place in which I could look at these four imperfect, very imperfect people who I am related to and choose them as family and realize exactly how much I love them.
1: Man, that's an even deeper interpretation uh, Well, you wrote it, so it should be. But, you know, one of the things that happens when you move to a city is you get to pick your family. And especially if you choose an artistic profession, you get to like pick the family that you want. And yeah, it's beautiful that you ended up picking the family that you started with. Yeah. You should play that for them. <laughs> <laughs> how do they, so I guess well, uh, another question, how, how did they feel about the book? Because you write about people, almost all of whom are still with us that you interviewed.
0: yeah. So, I mean, it's probably worth explaining where the book came from, particularly yes, because yes. really, I'm trying to describe what it is vis a vis the rest of my work. Like, it's a mm. non sequitur, is what it is, right? Like, I was a technology journalist and a business journalist, and I could tell you way too much about Mark Zuckerberg. And I could <laughs> explain why the balance sheet of any public company was problematic in ways that maybe you wouldn't see on the surface. And I loved that kind of like pragmatic description and I loved profiling people I didn't know like landing in the front seat of their lives and spending two or three weeks you know trying to understand their experience in the world and then writing a you know a one that I did I loved was like I profiled the department of defense the sec deaf the guy named Ashton Carter who actually just passed away mm-hmm. and like traveled all over with the sec deaf right and that was a fun career so then, okay, now it's like the spring of 2020. Like you, I am at home with my new baby, who is about a year old, probably same as you, Jude,
1: mm-hmm. same as you. Yep.
0: And it's March and suddenly my job just grounds to a halt and my life grounds to a halt. And my wife and I are like, gosh, suddenly we're like, I don't think New York City is even safe to be in. We put our dog and our baby in the back of our Subaru and we drive 18 hours south to her parents' house. And we move into her childhood bedroom, which is not, by the way, what I thought I would be doing in my adulthood. <laughs> and, you know, at first we try to do the things you do at the beginning of the pandemic. We get super Zoom happy and we do Zoom yoga and Zoom cocktail hours and a really memorable Zoom 40th birthday party for a friend. And then like two weeks in, I'm so over it. I'm like just exhausted by the whole thing. And I get really depressed. I think like a lot of people and I stopped talking to anybody. And after that, I realized that actually the only people that I'm talking to consistently in a week and almost every day are my family members, right? Mm. My mom and my dad and my brother and my sister. And we're quarantining in you know, five different houses in four different states. And these are the people that I'm reaching for in a global emergency. And that feels weird to me because I would classify my family as fairly dysfunctional growing up, like not people that I would think that I would choose later in my life as people to spend time with. So, all that's going on in the back of my head. And I have a lot of spare time because there's a global pandemic. And my, I was lucky enough, I was an M, a journalist with LinkedIn, and I was lucky enough that my job wasn't going anywhere. But I didn't need to go to it every day. And the work was a lot less. And I have a really wonderful literary agent who I love. And she was like, you know what? Now's a great time to pitch your dream book. So at first hmm. I was like, dream book. Okay, I could profile somebody who's really important in artificial intelligence. And she was like, nah, think bigger. And then I thought, well, you know what? I could try to figure out like why my family... Likes each other. Like, this is the big mystery that's driving me right now. Like, what if I wrote a book about that? She was like, tell me more. And I thought, well, what if I tried to interview all the members of my family the same way that I do interview people that I don't know in my profession? What would happen then? Could I tell one story that explained how we all got into the closet, exactly how awful it was to grow up closeted, and perhaps chiefly what happens when we all come out of our closets? And she's like, great, we'll call it the family outing. Sounds great. <laughs> and here we are.
1: Sometimes great projects just start with a title. Yeah, it's really true. So you collected these stories from your fa- It's funny because I, after I sort of had my revelation of like, oh, I love all these people. And I, I just realized, oh, she's a feature writer. Like this is her job is to like get you into the life of somebody really fast and get you to understand who they are. How was it deploying that skill on members of your own family?
0: It was a little bit of a trip, right? I'm an Mm -hmm. oldest child and I'm sure you can tell I'm fairly extroverted. And (laughs) in earlier conversations with my family, I just figured I was the expert on my family. I know everything about them. If you want to know about my little brother, I am the authority on my little brother. And the project required me to instead turn on the tape recorder, ask open-ended questions and not fill in the answers. And it didn't take me very long to realize that when I actually did that, My family members actually told me a lot of things that I did not know about them, particularly about their own emotional lives. And I'm still curious as to why they felt safe enough to do that. That is a little bit of a mystery to me, but they did, Hmm. all of them. And so I collected these stories and I began to write. And as I wrote, I would share every chapter with them. I felt like, and if you read the book, it's really personal for every person. Like I don't Mm -hmm. leave a lot of stones unturned. And if I was going to be sharing that information about other people, that was really important to bring them along in the process so they didn't, you know, get to the end and then I would pass them a draft. And then two weeks later, I'd need to get it to my editor and that would be that. That felt patently unfair for what I was asking of them. So I'd give them every chapter and mostly Lucas, what they would say is like, that didn't happen. I don't remember it that way. (laughs) And I realized exactly how awful memory is, right? Like my dad would be like, no, that dinner definitely happened in 1992 And, you know, I would be like, no, I remember it in 1998. And my mom would say, well, it never happened at all. And like, I was left to try to stitch together like five narratives and realized that like, even when we all bring our best intentions to the mix, like memory is an entirely faulty tool for stitching together a story. But the place we ended up going, which was, I think, more interesting is, I mean, mostly I would say like 90%, the stories in this book line up with all five of our memories occasionally somebody doesn't remember something or says it happened differently and then I just disclose it I talk about it and what I realized is like perspective informs memory right so there's one thing like so my parents they had a very long process of divorce it was several years long my dad came out of the closet and it would be easy to think that that's why they got divorced and yes mm. it is true that that is a big part of why they got divorced but truthfully their marriage just wasn't working. And I think it's really easy when one person comes out of the closet to hang a dysfunctional marriage on the gayness of it all when actually two people create a dysfunctional marriage over time. Well, I like to say, by the way, I was the first to come out of the closet. I was like 19 years old and (laughs) kind of the boring gay in the family. And I just own that. Like, I went to Brown University. I looked around me. There were lots of great examples of very happy queer people. And I realized, oh, hey, that's me. I come home and I tell my parents and, you know, my mom cries and she's like, oh gosh, you know, I think your cousin Charlie is gay because he's so emotional. And
1: I love that part of the book. You know, lot. Charlie's
0: 11 <laughs> years old. Okay. <laughs> Instantly, he does come out as gay much later in his life, but you know, then she says, I love you. And that's a great answer. And my dad says nothing. And then the next day, you know, he saunters into the kitchen and he, pours himself some cereal and he says you know i thought i was gay once too i was like what Mm. and he was like Mm. yeah it's like what did you do and he said oh oh i married your mom and i was like had that moment where i was like oh my god my dad's gay right and then he just kind of wandered out of the house and so i had a little bit of a sense right but i figured like okay we chose to marry my mom like life is life three years later my sister is home from college and she is IMing on her computer with her boyfriend, and a chat box pops up and it is a love interest of my dad's. And so my mm. sister basically kicks my father out of the closet, right? Like that is how my father comes out of the closet. And over the next three years, his marriage, you know, falls apart and then sort of limps along as he and my mother try to figure out how to navigate their future together. And I'll take you right to the end of it when my sister, my brother, and I, we all called them up. We scheduled a conference call. We called them up and we said, guys, it's time for you to get divorced. And the thing about Hmm. that call that's important is that I remember it. My brother remembers it. My sister can tell you exactly where she was sitting and how she held the phone. My parents have no memory of it at all. My mom, in fact, said, oh, it didn't even happen. And we we all tried to figure out, well, why would that be? And then we realized that for the kids, the fact of their divorce was a big deal to us. And we felt like we needed to weigh in. But for my parents, the fact of their divorce didn't have a lot to do with their kids. They were working on their relationship with each other. And so our opinions weren't the most important piece of that. They weren't even all that memorable. Man. And that's the funky thing about memory, right? It's just, it's, you know, very unreliable.
1: This happens with my family too, and my father in particular, like he'll remember something that we did together and I just remember it completely differently from the way that he remembers it. Yeah. it's our whole family. It's it's interesting when you talk, have those conversations. One of the beautiful symmetries in your book, and I I thought of this when you just sort of retold me the story of your dad (laughs) just saying like, oh, I thought I was gay once. The book paints a picture of what it was like to come out as a Christian gay man in the 60s, I guess, 70s. Yeah you know, this is from his recollection. He never came out, but he knew he was gay and saw therapists and the DSM, I guess, two at that time diagnosed him with a disorder. Right. And 20, 30 years later, your brother faces the exact same book and the exact same problem. And they're diagnosing him. And he's, you know, he's clearly from the way you describe Evan. First of all, I want to be Evan's best friend. So if he's ever in LA, tell him, (laughs) we have a guest house and come stay with us. Great, we'll do. Yep, 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 no problem. But from the (laughs) way that you describe him, like, it just seems like if any doctor, like just talking to him would be like, yeah, yeah, you need to do this and we're going to help you. Yeah. But he encountered a lot of resistance the same way that your dad, instead of a therapist saying, oh, you're gay, like, that's fine. And let's talk about how you can, you know, tell your family and move on with your life. And like, your dad didn't have that. And then your brother Evan didn't really have that either. But they both managed to figure it out. I just, I just loved that.
0: I love that you bring up that parallel because I had not thought about that parallel till right this
1: second. Oh, wow.
0: And and you're right. It's completely parallel. Mm. Like my father goes to counselors Mm. to help him work this out and they Mm. diagnose him according to the mainstream thinking of that time, which was the late sixties, early seventies. And the thinking in that time was like, okay, for young men, for boys, they might like boys. But then when they go through adolescence and then when they grow up, then they stop liking boys and they like girls. And if they still like boys, then they have a disorder. And so the therapist's reaction to my dad was like, oh, don't worry, you're not gay. You just need to get married. Right. And so then you fast forward to my brother's experience as transgender. He realizes he's transgender. He needs hormones. He goes to a Fenway in Boston, which is an incredible, is an incredible Healthcare center for the LGBTQIA plus community, but also working in the framework of its moment in history and its time. And this time was 2006 or so. And so my brother asked for hormones, and the doctor was like, "Well, okay, let's make sure you need it. Let's make sure I can diagnose you according to the criteria." And brought up child rearing, and my brother said, "Well, I want to be able to continue to have children." And the doctor's response was, you can't be a man and want to have children. You must be wrong about wanting to be a man. Really, I'm not willing to write you the script for hormones.
1: I just want to point out on behalf of your brother, I am a man and I wanted to have children.
0: (laughs) And also like, look at the moment that we're in. And this is the cool thing, right? Is the continuum of change that we have found ourselves on in our lifetimes. Like you and I are you know, somewhere around the vicinity of peers. And in our lifetime, we have progressed through a young adulthood in which people were not out on television through to the point where we're parents of children who will be encouraged to come out in ways that we can't even imagine, right?
1: Yeah. My godson is about 16 and he like, you know, he had like feelings for a boy in his class. And told everyone and was like, he was like, yeah, I guess I think I'm bi. And everyone in his life was like, okay, cool. And then I think it just passed. But it's just like, I don't know what his sexuality is. I don't know if he knows, but like whatever it is, it's fine. Right. Everybody's just totally supportive of it. Right. Like if you want to date that guy and then marry a girl or date that girl and marry a guy, like whatever you want to do is just fine. And, and, and like the parents, I understand the adult in his life being that way, but his peers are like that too. They're just like, oh yeah, this is what happens. You, you know, figure it out as you get older.
0: I am so optimistic that that is where the world is heading. And that is the world that our children inherit and that they discover all kinds of ways that I haven't even imagined to embrace aspects of themselves that I don't even think about, that I take for granted. And also, you know, we live in a, our moment in history when there's this great backlash occurring. And, you know, our Judes are the same age ish, very close. And when my Jude was born in the state of New York, even though my wife carried him and we used a sperm donor. I get to be on the birth certificate. My name is listed on the other parent slot. And that is revolutionary, but it's also a state document. And back in 2018, Mm. I didn't worry that much about whether I needed to shore up my rights beyond that because you know marriage is legal and we're good. And here we are four years later, and I'm in the process of a second parent adoption, which is onerous and annoying. But It feels to me like gay marriage may fall at the federal level, and then I won't legally be my child's parent outside of New York state. And so we are in this backlash moment where like, yes, person to person, the world feels like it's expansive in ways that we can't imagine. But for some cohort of people, the world is also becoming less safe, which is why I think there's like a political reason to write a personal memoir in this moment.
1: What is the cohort of people for whom the world is becoming less safe?
0: LGBTQA people like my family, for example, if gay marriage falls at the federal level, like my children are less protected.
1: So I heard that exactly the opposite of what you said. I I think that it's the people who would oppose gay marriage for reasons I cannot fathom. Yeah. I think they feel like the world is becoming less safe. Yeah. I mean, the world is today. I mean, unless something happens at the Supreme Court level, the world is as safe for LGBT, et cetera, communities as it was yesterday. Nothing has happened yet. Maybe something will, but nothing has yet happened.
0: I disagree with you, Lucas. I mean, Hmm. like I respectfully and lovingly disagree with you.
1: Oh, you can disagree with me angrily if you want. That's fine. But I
0: don't because I feel like you you and I in particular are like (laughs) talking from the same like side of the house here. But Hmm. I also believe that when the rhetoric enters the public conversation, hate crime is allowable in ways it wasn't, right? And so Hmm. already like forget the laws the fact that this stuff is being advanced unleashes a type of behavior in society that is like particularly dangerous for the marginalized and i don't think my family experiences it in brooklyn but like hate crimes are up across the united states and particularly in places like florida and the deep south and like i do think that laws will change but even if they don't change even if there is not a backlash The hate that is allowed to permeate through society by virtue of the fact that these conservative voices are advocating for a backlash is already dangerous.
1: Yeah, I like, see, I feel like I agree with you that, let's see, where do I agree with you? I agree with you on (laughs) on pretty much everything, but like, I can't speak to whether or not hate crimes are up. I I know that hate crimes against Asian Americans are up. I don't know if hate crimes against LGBT people are up. Maybe you know that. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know. I'm just trying to get into the head of like. This is another sort of specter in your book is the specter of religion. Yeah. And this is a tough one for me. I was not raised religious. I was raised just like, some people believe this, we don't believe that. Believe whatever you want when you get older. That's how I was raised. And I can think of nothing less interesting than what someone does in their own bedroom. Truly. Like, I I do not understand how people are obsessed with this. I do not understand why someone in Utah gives a shit who someone in New York fucks. I just don't understand it. But it is an existential issue for these people. I mean, to get any political movement off the ground, it requires a lot of work, a lot of money, a lot of time. And they wouldn't do it if they didn't think it was so important. And so they must be threatened by homosexuality in some way. And the only way that I can see that someone would be threatened by homosexuality is if they think they might be gay and they need to make the gay go away. Mm -hmm. That's the only thing I can think of. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't think we're disagreeing. I, I just I just don't know. Like. And and that that's ne- that's never really worked. I just don't, I just don't, or I guess it doesn't now. I don't know. I feel like I'm babbling, and we're going to edit this. Oh, um, yeah,
0: I mean, I hope we don't, because yeah. like I think that actually the conversation we're having is like a little bit of the internal conversation that a lot of people have, and it's okay to muddle through it, right? It's okay to not be yeah. able to define it or to it's. It's okay to to bring it back to the book. Mm-hmm. Like I hope that the book takes us away from all of that and grounds us in. Mm-hmm like the personal experience of trying to love the people that we are closest to, right? And this book has at its core, like queerness and coming out. But there are all kinds Mm -hmm. of reasons that families find it really hard to be close to each other. And to me, like what I'm hoping is that the rubric or the framework of coming out is simply a path toward talking about how we navigate intimate relationships with the people that we're physically closest hmm. to.
1: Yeah. That's a beautiful sentiment. Oh my God. I have to talk to you about something else in your book. <laughs> the actualization practices, the actualization class. I, I forget the name, uh, World something. World
0: Works. Oh yeah. World, world works. works. Okay. Why? Have you done it?
1: Well, World Works is a real thing, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. So I was actually thinking that it might've been a pseudonym for one that I did.
0: What was yours called?
1: It was called MIT M-I-T-T. Hmm. And some of the things you described were identical. Hmm. And I'm proud to say, Jesse, I actually got kicked out of mine. What? <laughs> yes. <laughs>
0: what what,
1: what <laughs> could you possibly
0: have done, Lucas, to land you in a position where you would be kicked out?
1: So just for the listeners, how would you describe these types of courses?
0: It's sort of a modern day derivative of a practice in the 70s called eastern sensitivity training. Hmm. It's about self-actualization. And it's about working through your issues very quickly and realizing the degree to which you have control over your own experience in the world. Mm-hmm. And there are really powerful <laughs> things about this experience. And also many people go through these programs and by the time they get to the end of them, feel like they're a bit of a cult, which is a word I tried never to use in the book, but
1: mm-hmm. there are
0: many people who would call this program that. Yeah. Good parts, bad parts. Yeah, you, didn't, you,
1: didn't, you, you didn't use the word, but you made it pretty clear. <laughs> Excellent writing.
0: So how did you get kicked out? Let's go back here.
1: So first of all, I was um, working for a guy who did it and went through, it was the same thing. It was a three-tiered thing that got progressively more expensive. The last one he did while I was working for him. So I know that it was very similar to what you did. Ropes courses, groups, all that stuff. They start you in like a hotel ballroom and it's a three-day intensive. And the late confront thing was something that was identical. And that if you're late, they confront you about why you're late and what's more important than your word, et cetera, et cetera. And they're trying to upsell you. And so I got into it because my boss did it and he paid for me to go, which I think was his, like, you know, you have to sell it to other people. So he paid for me to go. And so I went to the first day and, you know, it was fine. I just sort of sat there and listened They, you know, I wanted to take notes because I thought maybe I'll write about this someday, but they don't allow you to take notes. Right. So like I mentioned, I'm not religious. And so like this setup of a bunch of people watching another person who has more information than them is very suspicious for me.
0: Understandable.
1: Watching her do the things that I have seen people do in evangelical churches and, you know, just uh, Mormon churches, just, she was just deploying these same techniques to make people riled up. And I just started like calling it out to like a person I was standing next to. I was just like, oh, she's doing this. This is. Like, I mean, everybody feels like sometimes they say things that they regret. Right. That's a universal sentiment. Right. Right. So like the fact that people think that she's speaking directly to them. And it turns out I was talking to uh, like one of the organizers. (laughs) I had no idea. And so he said, if you're not going to do this work, you should just leave right now. And I said, all right, I'm out of here. See you
0: later, buddy. I love the language. I love the language. If you're not going to do the work. Right. (laughs) Yep. You know, here's the deal. I, I was pretty unhappy at that moment in my life. I was very mm. victim-y at the moment in my life. I was, in every story that I told about myself, I was like hardcore victim. And that program shook me free of that and gave me a sense of yeah. agency in my life in a sense that I could shift things. And I am super grateful for that. So I wanted to try to write about it in a way that made it clear that it was both a very good thing in my life and then ultimately a hilarious problem in my life. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, I love that part of the book so much. Um, yeah. But yeah, and it's like, it's, it's, you know, it's like Christianity or Scientology or any of these things. Like it does genuinely help some people, yep. you know, it really does. Okay. And so it's hard to say that it's evil because it really, there are probably people out there that took world works and it changed their life for the better. Yes.
0: And, and I am one of them. I am one of them. My life is better because I did it. Wow. But that doesn't erase all of the problems. And my life is even better because I left it.
1: Yeah, well, somewhere else in the book, you said something really amazing about the price of belonging to a group is accepting beliefs that you don't hold Yeah. sometimes. And like I would rather not have the benefit than have to do that. Yep. I'm aware that that's weird and I've probably missed out on some stuff because of it. Yeah. <laughs> so interesting. Well, mm-hmm. I just want to say one more thing, <laughs> but one of the things I identified with in your book I was the exact same way in relationships as you really? were. Yes. And my now wife, like, did not articulate it in the same way that your wife articulated it, but basically had the same talk with me, which was like, look, like, this is going to be good if you just, like, stop doing the thing that you really want to do right now. It's going to be fine. Let me describe it the way you described Francis describing it, which is that, you know, you, Jesse, go up and down and Francis goes smoothly upward. Yes. <laughs> and- that was exactly my experience was that, you know, with my wife, you know, we got engaged really fast, but we stayed, you know, just, I mean, we've been together. It's been wonderful. And I had never like gotten through some of the stuff you have to get through in a relationship in order for it to work. I, I just gotten to that point and just left every single time.
0: I love that. Same. Yeah. And there are moments when I miss some of the highs of some of those like early and unhealthy relationships I had actually no moments right now because I'm way too tired because of little kids, but you know, <laughs> yeah. long art. But what is true is like, Frances is the hero of my story in so many ways. She's just like consistently mm-hmm. lovely every day. And I sometimes still am confused how I landed in like such good company. I feel the
1: same way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, whatever we're doing, it seems to be working. I know. Because um, our wives are pretty awesome. Keep
0: doing the same as that.
1: Yeah, so yeah, so whatever. So the advice for the listeners is uh, whatever Jesse Ample and I are doing seems to be working. So if you want an awesome wife, Read Jesse Hempel's book.
0: Hey, done, done. That's that's yes. gonna be my my tagline from now on.
1: So I'm going to ask you the question that I ask everyone to end the podcast, which is to recommend two books to our audience that you think they would like.
0: Well, in true World Works fashion, I would recommend mm-hmm. The Family Outing by Jesse Hempel because World Works would say <laughs> you should always put yourself
1: first. Yes, we don't allow authors to recommend. Okay, our that's, own fair. Books. that's we, fair. We've just done a whole podcast episode about your book. <laughs> Which I'll recommend it. I think think people should read it.
0: Okay, so I would put like high up on the list Lady Justice by Dahlia Lithwick. It came out in September. It's a wonderful book about the lady lawyers and lady journalists and lady judges who have been such activists over the last decade. And then I'm going to take you way back Mm -hmm. to I think it came out in 2017 or 2018 by The Yellow House by Sarah Broom. It continues to be one of my very favorite books. I don't know It it. is also a memoir. I believe it won the National Book Award that year. And it is lyrical and beautiful and also just a really good read.
1: I'm definitely gonna check it out. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: Thank you for listening to Book Society. Our show is produced by me, Lucas Cantor Santiago. This episode was edited and mixed by Levi Sharp. Thank you so much to the Miami Book Fair for connecting us with Jessie Hempel. Like so many of the authors at the Miami Book Fair, she's an amazing guest. She's an amazing writer. She's a person you should follow and learn more about. And if you want to follow and learn more about a lot of different interesting writers, you should check out the Miami Book Fair. It happens every November, but it also happens year-round. You can... Go to MiamiBookFair.com. You can listen to panel discussions. You can listen to talks. You can see what's new in the book world. You can see what's happening in the next book fair. And it is an organization and an event that I am proud to be a part of. I'm proud that the podcast is a part of it. And I have fun every time I go. If you're thinking, I would like to do something simple and easy to help out this show because I really like it. The thing you can do is to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. It's super simple. Takes a second doesn't cost anything. And it really, really helps the show out. Do you read
0: so fast, Lucas?
1: No, this is something I've actually wanted to talk. So I'm dyslexic. I read extremely slowly and I read a lot of books as audiobooks. I sort of mix and match, yep. but no, I just, I, one of the reasons I decided to do this show was because I I don't know, I kind of wanted to be like, well, this is not something I feel like I could do, so I want to do it. And I've figured out ways to do it. It's a lot of scheduling and a lot of making time for stuff. I've gotten to read faster, but I'm not naturally a fast reader. I'm a very slow reader. Awesome.